Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Today, we have for you Juanita Ingram. Welcome, Juanita. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Can you give us a bit about your biography and as much as you'd like to share? Sure, I will keep it short. In essence, I am living abroad. I'm an expat. I'm also an attorney, an author, an actress, and I'm the creator and executive producer of the Expats International Ingrams, which is a series that's on Amazon Prime. I'm also the reigning Mrs. Universe for this year and the first Black woman to do so. So that is, in essence, my background. I'm a wife and a mother of two. Those are my most proud accomplishments is actually being a mother and a wife, but I'm a corporate expat. So my husband's job is what takes us abroad and I am the accompanying spouse. From our conversation, do you mind sharing a bit about your travels, where you've lived and where you currently are, if you're able to? Sure. I am originally from America, as you can hear, from Tennessee. And then we moved to London about 12 years ago and lived there for almost five years. Then we went back to the U.S. for a few years, I think uh, almost four. And then we moved to Taiwan. And now we currently live in Singapore. So I've spent the last around 12 years is when this expat journey started. And so that's our current plan. We're in Singapore now. This is going on year two. Oh, wow. It must be intriguing. I've never been to that part of the world. I'm mm. wondering what it's like being in like Taiwan and now Singapore. What is it like living over there? You know, Asia is different. It's definitely a more immersed international experience. When you think about living abroad, I think our first experience of living in London was different from the U.S., obviously, because the U.K. is very different from America, but there wasn't a steep language barrier, although British English is much different than American English, but it's still English. And you can still navigate your environment with ease that the lack of communication does not bring. So when we moved to Taiwan, that did add a different element of an international experience in that it is very Mandarin is the first language, and it is very hard to learn Mandarin. I took five years of Spanish. I feel like there's only so much space in my brain for it, for new languages. So I know enough to be quiet in Mandarin because <laughs> it is a very hard language. My kids picked it up very fluently, but it was different living in Asia, different on many respects, the language being the first, but almost the easiest 
of cultural nuances to navigate. So it is very different. Singapore, however, is almost like a blend of the two. Interestingly enough, they call it the London of Asia. English is the first language. It's very easy to navigate here, very easy to live here. Probably one of the easiest countries, I think, to live in on the Asian continent if you're coming from an uh, English-speaking country. So it's very easy in that regard. It's beautiful. It's safe. Taiwan and Singapore are extremely safe. Singapore is extremely clean. And so there are tremendous benefits, but culturally it is very different. And how do you navigate the educational system there for your children? Because they're now teenagers. And if you've done it for 12 years, how did they manage the different type of school systems? Yes, they are true third culture kids. When we were living in the UK, I started my kids out in the British school system in a private school there, just because the curriculum in the UK was a bit stronger for primary school. So they started out in the British school system. When they went to Taiwan, it was interesting because the international schools there for Americans are full with local kids. And so there aren't really that much space. There isn't that much space for American kids in the American schools. So my kids were part of the British school system in Taiwan. And now they're in the Singapore American school here in Singapore. And they navigate with great ease and fluidity. You know, third culture kids are very flexible. They kind of adapt to their environment. They get used to new things. But at the same time, the beauty of their generation is technology allows them to stay connected with You know, my kids have friends from the UK that are now living in Portugal and all over the world that they stay connected with. I just came back from a girl's trip weekend with my daughter, who is 15. We went back to Taiwan, hadn't been back since we moved to Singapore so that she could hang out with her best friends that are still there and actually her old school hung out. So they navigated with ease in terms of the different curriculums we did decide for high school and the latter part of middle school to get them back on an American track, which is a good thing. But again, international schools have somewhat of a universal system that varies, depends on whether or not you're in a European-based system or an American system, but they seem to navigate it with ease. That's great to hear. Having a four and a half year old and just loving that aspect of life of traveling I've worked and traveled myself a bit before and I itch all the time and considering whether I should do that to give her that opportunity, you know, to be exposed and to different cultures and languages and so forth. And so it's good to hear that your children have feared well, because sometimes there's other side of that where some children struggle. So I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, thanks. You know, I think it just depends on the school and you have to find a very supportive and good school environment. All international schools are not the same. Here in Singapore, there are a multitude of options. And that is a bit of a difference too, talking about school systems. In Europe and in the UK, you pretty much register your kids for for schools. I never experienced that there was a wait list or there were any barriers to getting your child into any particular international school system. Let's say the American school in London or I think Virginia Water was the actual, I was thinking of the town that the American school was in, in the UK. But, you know, I found that experience to be different in that you were truly registering children for school. When we got to Taiwan and we sort of showed that in the first season of the show, 
it was applying for school. It wasn't a guarantee that your kids would get in. It was very much scarcity in terms of space and they're a very higher scrutiny on if you get in. It's a very much different approach as opposed to other countries. So I think that's something that you have to keep in mind when you're traveling around and when you're deciding where you want to live is what does the actual school system look like? What are the options? And how diverse is that environment? For me, as a Black American, diversity was key because it it plays out in terms of the experience that your child has. It sets the tone for the environment that they're in and one of being inclusive. And so I, I like the schools that are here in Singapore. There's a DEI committee. There's a Black Student Union. You know, there's a lot of diversity that's here and a lot of options. So I think that's something as parents we have to keep in the forefront of our minds as they get older. When my children, my daughter started in the UK when she was four and a half and started reception there. And it is a different consideration because they're so young in terms of what their experience will be. At that point, I was just looking at curriculum, reading standards, and who had the best curriculum and standards for her age group. And I found that the British school system was a bit stronger than the American school system. And I've heard that that's the case up until maybe around fourth grade. And then you want to reevaluate and reconsider. So it's always an ongoing process that you look at in terms of reception, elementary, middle school, and who has the stronger environment and what curriculum and program that you want your kids to be on. That's probably a more in-depth primer on international education <laughs> than what people are were expecting. But that's just been my experience having you know, my son was 15 months old when we first started this journey and he's getting ready to be 13. He spent the majority of his life outside of the U.S. So it's been a journey. They're going to be truly global citizens. And you said that they were able to pick up what sounds like Mandarin when they were in Taiwan. And that is just so neat. It's amazing. I wonder how do they identify? Did I identify as American since they were, were they born here? And what identity do they, do they hold to? It's interesting because especially this season, as my daughter came into her teenage years, I asked her when we first moved to Taiwan, because we had spent three years in America. So we lived in the UK for five. They came back with very thick British accents because they were so young when we went over. And in fact, my son's original accent when he learned to speak, it was British, but he never really had an American accent because he was, I was still breastfeeding him when we left. So he was still very, very young. I asked my daughter when we moved to Taiwan, how does she see herself? How does she identify? Does she feel more American? Does she feel like something else? And she said, I just, I feel at home wherever I am. I don't feel more inclined. Like I feel so American that I just hold on to this identity of being American because I haven't really been there that much, but I don't feel uncomfortable being in America. But at the same time, she just feels adapted to wherever she is. And I think that is the epitome of being a global citizen and that what I want for my children is to feel that they have a right to be wherever they are, that they feel comfortable being wherever they are. They have spent more time outside of the U.S. than in. It's funny, my son, when we moved back to America, we were in so he was six years old when we, we moved back to America and he had a very thick British accent and he really only knew the UK. He didn't remember being born, obviously, because he was still nursing. He just didn't remember. And I was walking him through 
the hospital that he was born, the pediatrician, we were going for a wellness check, we we're trying to get registered for school. And I said, oh, KJ, this is where the hospital where mommy had you. And he stopped. And I tried to explain to him that he was American before, but he's six years old and he has his British accent. He goes to a British school. All his friends are, you know, very diverse, but they're all British. And so he stopped walking. He was like, really, mommy? Here. And he just kind of looked around <laughs> and just <laughs> disbelieved. And I said, yes, KJ, you were born here. He was like, in this in this hospital, I'm, I'm not. I'm not British. And I'm like, no, I've been trying to explain your nationality to you for years now. You were born in America. He looked so disappointed and so sad. And then he immediately, it, well, he was sad because he was like, I'm not, I'm not British. And I'm like, no, I've been trying to tell you that. And then he immediately switched. He was like, right then. So I get to play proper American football. And I'm like, yes, if that is the perk for you, then yes, you do. And he was like, right then, carry on. And he was just like, fine with it like he just didn't care but in the moment you could see his little wheels turning in his head and I was like oh my god he's finally getting nationality and citizenship right now because when we moved back I literally had to explain like American currency and my daughter when she went to school for the first time she came home she says mommy everybody knows this prayer they all put their hands on their hearts and they say this prayer in school and I'm like they're praying in school what is she talking about and I felt so bad because she was talking about the Pledge of Allegiance and she didn't know what it was. <laughs> I was like, oh. they really had no experience with American culture. So it was good for us to spend, I think it was almost three years before we moved back out to Taiwan, just so that they understood their their nationality and their citizenship. But they feel, and we talk about this on the show, they feel at home wherever they are because They've lived so many places and then they've traveled to 28 countries. I stopped counting at 28. It may be more now, but they've traveled so many places, but they've lived, you know, on three continents now. So it is beautiful to watch the world through their eyes and to truly see what being a global citizen means. I think we theoretically by construct can can grasp that. And we truly are in terms of, you know, when you're an expat and you've lived abroad for so long. But to see it through a child's eyes and how they navigate the world, it is unique. And that third culture kid experience is unique, has its drawbacks sometimes because, you know, you don't get to see family as often. You throw in a pandemic and then it becomes very real <laughs> as opposed to your norm of, of seeing family at least once a year. But it's been a great experience. I mean, they, they do identify. They understand that technically they are Americans, even though when we were coming back from Taiwan. My daughter still said, so I so I have an American passport, right? I'm like, yes, Kingsley, you do. So it still it still churns through their mind sometimes because they do feel that they belong to so many different places. So yeah, it's it's been a, a good journey in that regard because I think it gives them confidence to be in any space. Oh, it's beautiful listening to you with your children's journey. It's beautiful. It's almost as if I almost want to say, even if they come back now, it's almost as if they will be okay here. They will fit in, you know, because they've built those muscles of just being adaptable to their environment and just being at home where they are. I feel like they would be okay, even if they were to come back here for a few years, they would be all right. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's no perfect place. You know, there are pros and cons to every place that you live. And I think that they've taken full stock of that. So 
I, I tell people all the time, my motto for our family is just bloom where you're planting. Because, you know, the expat journey, and I, I was getting into a conversation with someone about this the other day, the difference between immigration and expat. Expat is temporary. It is not permanent. It is not seeking permanence. I think for people who have lived in one place for like 16, 20 years, I don't really consider them expats. Like you may be living in a country that you're not from, but you're not an expat if you've lived there for 15, 20 years. You're an immigrant. And the immigration experience is totally different in that it is more stable. It is more stable in the sense of consistency in one place, not stable in the sense of the experience, but stable in the sense of you are in a particular place for an extended period of time. The expat experience is one of constant change for tax reasons alone. Like we're a corporate expat family. We're here on a corporate package for tax reasons alone. You know, every five years, you're probably going to move because the tax consequences to the sponsoring company become very different if you stay beyond five years. So, you know, that it is a period of time. You're there for a period of time. Now, there are some people who have been on a corporate package who have gone beyond five years, but that's very, it's not as common. So yes, with that, you get to the place where adaptability and, and navigating change becomes almost a constant and a norm. I know some people in their 30s and 40s that have a hard time navigating that. The whole premise of our show, that is the underlying theme, is just navigating change. And that's something that we all can relate to, whether it's change in a new country or just change period in the world that we're living in. Certainly in the last two to three years, we've all had to navigate through that. And having that skill set and the ability to do that is something that will prove beneficial for them. Yes, they probably would do quite well in, in America and be just fine. They We were there for three years in between London and Taiwan, and they were absolutely fine. Once they learned the Pledge of Allegiance and understood that they were not praying and that, <laughs> that it was a pledge and they understood how to count U.S. money and you know, understood some U.S. history, but that's part of the, the fun of it all. So I wanted to then switch into your HSBU experience and your studies before going abroad. I just thought it was so intriguing because now I have a four and a half year old daughter and chances are she will go to a university here. And I just love your expression about your time at, I think it was Tennessee State. And can you go into just telling us a little bit about what that experience going, attending an HBCU was like for you? Absolutely. You know, I, I attribute um, or I guess uh, give credit to my HBCU experience for me being who I am today. I absolutely loved it. I know that a different world is not in, in syndication anymore, but when I was growing up, you know, we had the Cosby show, we had a different world. And I remember watching a different world thinking, gosh, I want that experience. And that's exactly what I had. It's almost as though it were play by play. It was just a beautifully supportive, empowering environment that made you know that you could do anything. It was beautiful. It was cultural. It was just it really helped to cultivate your your Black identity as you went on the maturation of your Black identity journey. And it is a journey. 
it just helped to cultivate a strong sense of identity and purpose in who you are. I mean, you look at people like Taraji P. Henson and Chadwick Boseman and Felicia Rashad and Samuel L. Jackson and so many people who came from HBCUs, uh, Spike Lee. You know, you look at all of these great examples of Black excellence, Kamala Harris. You know, yes, that, I was thinking about her. <laughs> uh, from HBCUs and had this experience. And there's a reason why undergirding our, our confidence level and our sense of identity is this deep set understanding of worth and value and knowing your own history, your true history. Not what you get necessarily in, in mainstream school and education, certainly not now, with there being sort of a redaction of even what was fundamental, but certainly with an expanded scope of understanding a broader history of those within the African diaspora. It is just a true experience. I'm not sure that I would be who I am today had it not been for that experience. It was beautiful. It was fun. It was educational. It was empowering. And every day, you know, I had a, a professor, Dr. Holt, in the honors program there. She would constantly tell us all the time there was nothing that we could not do, that we could do anything. And it was coupled with opportunities and exposure and internships and mentoring and things that really fed into you as a student. And that was done for everybody. It was just like being at a perpetual family reunion every single day. It was the most beautiful time. And everyone that I know that went to an HBCU has the same experience. So it's it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So I'm wondering how, if you can talk a bit about your transition from, you know, you were JD, MBA, and then you're into the film industry. How did you enter that space? Yes. Yeah, so I got my law degree and my MBA at the same time. I started practicing law. I'm licensed in Tennessee and Indiana. And I started practicing law. Wow, this is year 21. I felt old saying that just now. You know, you stop adding it up after a while. It's been 21 years and I stopped counting after a while but because <laughs> I started feeling old. But <laughs> it's been over 20 years. And when I initially started, I've always been a transactional attorney. So corporate deals, real estate, contracts, procurement law, always on the commercial side. And then I started doing entertainment law as well. And so I had clients who were in the entertainment space and doing and structuring their deals for them, being on set with them and being in that space. And then I saw within that the reality space or unscripted space. And I started out when I was nine. My mother is a musician and music teacher, and she started us out in the arts. I started out in theater. I've always had that sort of talent there when even going to an HBCU, the real draw for me in going to an HBCU was the marching band and performing. At Tennessee State, you truly had to be a musician. It wasn't about just playing an instrument in a rudimentary sort of way. I mean, Tennessee State just won two Grammys. We were musicians and performers. And so that aspect of the arts was always there. And when I started having entertainment clients, and particularly when I went to London and I had to step away from the traditional practice of law because I wasn't licensed to practice in the UK. I'm licensed. I passed the bar exam. I'm licensed for 21 years now in the US, in Tennessee and Indiana. But when I stepped away from the traditional practice of law, I decided, okay, well, what do I really enjoy doing outside of this traditional practice of law? And it's about 
being able to bloom again where you're planted and doing a pivot and understanding that if you're a multifaceted individual, giving yourself permission to be in a particular season in your life. And that's what I did. So I gave myself permission to say, okay, Juanita, you've got all this talent stored up in you. You've got books that you haven't written that you know that you want to write. You've got things that you want to do in terms of the performing arts. And I started back acting and went on auditions. I got signed. I had my first indie film feature in the UK, first Best Actress nomination there. And then when we moved back to the US, I would continue to represent clients who were in the entertainment space in Unscripted and then decided to have my own production company because I saw a need in that there wasn't a lot of content that presented Black American people or Black people in general in the unscripted space in a positive light, positive and authentic. And I think in studying film and television, first being an actress and being a performer and then getting behind the lens, I started out with my own legal talk show called Legal Notion. And that was when I really first started producing and creating opportunities and producing content. And then I had the idea for the show when we were actually living in London our last year. And I had friends or or clients who were in the reality space. And then seeing that there was a need as a filmmaker and as a storyteller, you always want to tell something or do something that hasn't been done. Tell a story that hasn't been told. I knew that there had never been a show about black people living abroad, about really about people living abroad, period. You have House Hunters International. That's just looking for a house. That's not really living. That's not a lifestyle show about people who live internationally. And so I knew that that had never been done. Certainly had never been done for black people. And then within the genre. So I'm a member, a voting member of the Television Academy. We put on the Emmys and, you know, television honors and different awards. And I've been a judge for the Emmys several times. And in looking at the landscape of what was available to us and about us, there was a need and a niche that hadn't been fulfilled in terms of family-friendly quality television in the unscripted genre for Black people. So I, I say this all the time. There's a show for everybody. I have to study it all. So I watch it all. I enjoy most of it in the sense that I watch television with a different lens. I'm looking at transitions and color grading and the technical aspect of television because I judge it. And, And it's a bit different in the way that I look at television. But in terms of the impact that shows like The Cosby Show and A Different World had on us in terms of where we went to school, how we saw ourselves, how we saw opportunity, the potential that we saw in just us as human beings and the humanity that we saw first within ourselves and then secondary that the world saw in us. We didn't have that. And evaluating what was available in the genre, you know, you have Blackish, you have Scandal, you have How to Get Away with Murder, all of these different shows in the scripted categories that show strong positive images of Black people. But in the unscripted genre, there was a lack and a void. So I had the idea for the show in 2015. Again, I've been a voting member of the Academy now for quite some time. I've been a judge for the Emmys. And, you know, I, I just saw what was available, knew that there hadn't been a story told about people living abroad, certainly not through the Black lens. And we used to do this thing called Soul Food Sundays in, in London, where we would rotate houses. And it was like eight different families. And, you know, it was, 
40 of us at any given time. We're barbecuing and Frankie Beverly and Mays is playing and Beyonce and we're out on the back garden. And then I looked up one day and there was Windsor Castle because we were living in the Windsor area. And then I looked down, there were all these black, you know, people who were successful and directors and VPs and various people running different companies and all of their children who were learning different languages. And I just stood there and I said, oh, my gosh, this is a show because no one ever shows this side of us. No one ever sees this. And this hasn't been normalized in media, in any particular genre. And this is my norm. And so I, I started the show in 2018 is when I end of 2018, 2019 is when we started filming. The first season came out in 2020. Um, and now we've launched season two just this month. And it is all about the black uh, and abroad experience of living abroad as black people. And what does that actually look like? Not just to travel, but to live. So I, I started out as sort of a blend between a performer and an artist and an entertainment lawyer. And it served me well because people forget and oftentimes tell people all the time, film and television is a business first. It is an art form, but it's a business. So I think my background is what suited me well to have whatever success that I've had thus far. I'm looking forward to checking it out. I really do want to go and just kind of binge on the first season. I'm sure I'm going to love it. <laughs> I hope Oh, yeah, it's there are 20 episodes. I heard that it's very addictive. So I, so just take some time. I heard that once you watch the first two, you'll look up and you'll be in episode 10 and you don't know how long. Like, how did I how did I sit here and watch 10 episodes already? But I heard it flows very quickly. You know, we don't have a lot of shows that show us in positive lights in terms of dealing with conflict. The premise of the show is, is based on edutainment, which is a phrase that the Black Panthers coined back in the 70s of being educational and entertaining. And I know in reality TV and unscripted TV, we're trying to transform how Black-led cast are being handled, uh, both in front of and behind the scenes. Uh, this being one that I funded myself, produced myself, directed myself, and owning your narrative and protecting it is something that I find very uh, critical for us to do to be able to tell our stories through our lens without distortion. You know, there's a show for everybody. There's nothing wrong with anything that's out there because there's something for everyone. I don't know of anybody in my friend circle that handles conflict in a, in the sense of you have a disagreement with somebody and the first thing that you do is flip a table or throw a drink. We don't do that. Now, do we do that as black people sometimes? Sure. But if the only thing that you show of us um, is us doing that and that's how we navigate conflict, then what you do is put out a very toxic stereotype of black people and how we interact and navigate through the world. And black people are not monolithic. We don't navigate the world in all one dimension in all the same way. We live very differently. We handle conflict very differently. And I think that there is a growing need and a desire to see diversity in how we are living and not just the same storylines put forth, especially for Black women and how we handle conflict, how we handle challenges, how we handle obstacles in life. So I wanted to put forth a very positive and authentic and honest depiction of Black people and sort of reshape and transform how we are handled in terms of how Black-led cast are put forth in the unscripted genre. It's interesting because as I listen to you speak, I'm remembering uh, some sentiments that I had being new to the United States. And the only available movies were like 
I don't know them all very well. I think I remember one named Belly. Is Belly one of them? And just a lot of film that depicts just this inner city gun fighting. And I remember saying to my cousin, like, why are these the only movies that are out there and people are raving out of them? I can't relate to that experience. I wasn't raised in that environment in Jamaica. I wasn't raised in that environment here in the U.S. I just couldn't relate to it. And if you said anything about it, you would be hated for that. And I'm like, but where are the other experiences of Black people? It was nowhere to be found. And so I'm really glad that you're underlining that. And and it's a huge, huge vacuum because, as I mentioned before, I have come up against some very negative stereotypes as I travel overseas and uh, and just wondering, like, where is this? string of negativity about Black people coming from. And it's because it's portrayed in film and the media and what is just projected to the rest of the world. That's all that they have. And it's interesting because it is the commonality that sort of is replete within the Black experience. And I know that Black is is not monolithic. You know, when we were living abroad, that's something that I had to explain to my Black American friends that you're black and Caribbean black are not the same, you know, and sometimes in our mindsets as black Americans, because we look at things sometimes from a lens of, well, what is the, how is the world going to handle you? Because oftentimes in the world, they don't make a distinction between black American and Jamaican in their world. When they look at you, black is black. And because of that, the commonality of having to navigate through these stereotypes becomes toxic to all blackness. For example, to me, it is just as dangerous to only have one lens of depiction of, let's say, Jamaican, British Jamaican heritage or culture. And that is top boy is your only depiction of that. Of course not, because your experience is not that of which top boy gives. You know, the Yardy experience and the Yardy genre is not the only genre that represents or depicts that of a Jamaican culture. It's not monolithic in that regard. But oftentimes, that's all people know. So it's the same with Black American culture. Belly is a wonderful film. It is a, actually, from a cinematic perspective, it is iconic. However, culturally, it is not the only culture that we have. But the problem is there's not a diversity in what the media puts forth. There's no real diversity in terms of what you see and what's put out there. So to people who are not within the culture, of course, Black Americans know, and we see Billy as the cinematic icon that it is. We don't take that in as, and that's who we are. It's one film about one group of people in one place and not even showing the full depth and range of, you know, New Yorkers, for example, that's not it. But people don't know that outside of that culture. So the same way Top Boy doesn't represent, you know, all of what is a yardy genre. Uh, In fact, it's interesting because the first film that I was in, my first Best Actress nomination from the British Urban Film Festival was in the yardy genre. And I learned a lot about that particular culture that doesn't represent all of what is that of Jamaican culture. It doesn't. Or even British Jamaican culture. It does. It's one film. It's one show. But if that is what becomes a narrative that is put forth and that's all that people get to see, then the stereotype becomes dangerous. 
and toxic. And you're absolutely right. It's interesting because on the show this time, this season, we dealt a lot with diversity and, and relationships and dating abroad and interracial marriages. And there's one gentleman who's a black American and I love his family. His daughter is absolutely stunning. I think she's almost five, might be six now. I don't think Talia's six, but he's married to a Taiwanese woman, Joelle, one of my dearest friends now. And they talk about on the show, I think it's the first episode when we meet them about how in the first six months of his marriage with his mother-in-law, now this man is heavy IT professional, speaks fluent Mandarin, has lived in like over nine different countries throughout Asia, um, fluid, I think in three different languages, does NFT crypto work. He, he has his own business. He's an entrepreneur, very professional, extremely capable. He's married her daughter. And in the first six months, he had to prove to her she thought he was a drug dealer. She thought he was a gangster. All of these stereotypes and, and really thought that. Had no reason to think that. And his wife says on the show, she thinks that because of the media. That's all they see. That's all they put forth. It's the movies. It's the television shows. So that's what her Taiwanese mother thought that she had married a, a criminal and had no reason to think that whatsoever. But that's their reality. So media, film, television, the arts has always been a beautiful catalyst and a vehicle for change, for navigating topics that the world was not ready to have in conversations that the world isn't, they aren't ready to have. But it's a beautiful art form that is able to be almost a, a cloud or a train to bring in these thoughts, ideas conversations that we need to have, but maybe we aren't ready to have outside of an entertaining experience. So I, I take it as a, a true responsibility to have this narrative and to handle this narrative responsibly in the sense of showing Black people abroad and to just be honest. I think that sometimes in the unscripted genre, things can be very contrived, very produced, overly produced, and, and it's not unscripted. It's not real in the sense that there is always a negative formula for entertainment and sometimes it's to our detriment so i'm doing what i can to change that and have some authenticity for our story and our journeys as black people of the diaspora in and in, in abroad join us next time for part two of this episode Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.